You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to our fourth episode on the sacraments, where Father Wiseman will join us once again to look at the new rite of baptism. Last week, we saw what was necessary for the sacrament of baptism to be valid, and we will see that the new rite of baptism is indeed valid. But all of the sacramentals, the blessings, the prayers, and the exorcisms, well, these have either been removed or drastically changed. Why? And if these things have been removed or changed, what has replaced them? To answer this, we will spend a moment to look at the Paschal Vigil. We'll also take some time to explore the concept of community. In the traditional Catholic understanding, there is such a thing as Catholic community, and it's a good thing. But this concept will play an outsized role in the new rite of baptism. As we move forward in this series, we are looking for help. If you like these series and want to have more of them, you can help us by leaving a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast, and you can share it with someone who you think would like it or appreciate it, or maybe they just need it. That's the best way to help because you're helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now let's join Father Wiseman for episode four of the sacrament series right now. Father Wiseman, thanks for joining us again for this second episode on baptism. How are you this week? Doing well. Thanks, Andrew. How about you? Good. Back in Richmond for your mission? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Great. Back in Richmond. So... Very good. Well, we uh, we left off last week talking about the traditional form of baptism, and this week we're going to be looking at the new rite. Um, just to make sure I have my terms right, is that correct? We say the new rite or the new form, or is that interchangeable? I would say the new rite, because okay. when we use the word form, it usually means more specifically the sacrament itself, rather okay. than the ceremonies that surround it. And so okay. the word rite is more usually more generic. And um, as we're going to see, there's not going to be a difference in the actual words said and the pouring of the water in the new rite, um, but there will be very different ceremonies surrounding it. Okay. Well, on that note, then, I guess the first question that I wanted to ask you is, uh, is the new rite valid? Is, is there any question of whether or not the new rite is a valid sacrament of baptism? Yeah, right. And there's no there's no question at all that it is indeed valid. It's very clear that as as we saw last time, there's always this material element and formal element that you have to put together for the sacrament. And the new rite of baptism contains in it exactly the same words and exactly the same gesture. And they are together as the, the traditional rite did. So the priest will will say the same words, do the same gesture. So we really have no doubt from that point of view that it is indeed valid. As Father Robinson, I think, had mentioned, we always talk about a third requirement being the intention of the minister. And this is where oftentimes people have questions about the new rites is what 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 is the minister intending to do, in fact, when he when he does the sacrament? Mm-hmm. Um, but here, I think we have to realize that with baptism, we really have no concerns about the intention, no real concerns, because the church has recognized that 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 formula, the intention of doing what the church does, that that formula is actually quite broad in practice when it comes to baptism. So there are a number of decisions that the Holy Office has made historically 
uh, we don't have time to go into them right now, but where they have said this, this non-Catholic baptism or this non-Catholic baptism is indeed valid or can indeed be valid, despite the fact that this person or that person or this minister doesn't believe the same things that we do about baptism. And so I think really here, we have no, no real doubt about the validity of these uh, new right baptisms, as long as they follow what is in the order of baptism, which specifies okay. very clearly the same uh, matter and form that we use in the, in the old right. Okay. So, so when we are contrasting the two rights, then, uh, and again, last week we talked a little bit about the adult right of baptism uh, or yes. the right of an adult baptism. Yes. Uh, but again, this week, are we going to be comparing um, infant to infant? Yes, I thought we'd kind of zoom in on that. And for a number of reasons, uh, the first reason is that I think it's the the easiest and the most direct comparison. If you want to compare all the ceremonies surrounding the baptism, the old rite, all the ceremonies surrounding the baptism, the new rite, um, it's easiest to look at infant baptism just because it's the simplest rite. The um, reception of adults in the new rite is something that's very complicated compared to infant baptism. But, you know, at its core, uh, the, the, the ceremonies that surround baptism are the same. And so even there, by looking at infant baptism in the new rite, we can see the way in which they are approaching the sacrament and kind of what they're thinking about it. But there's another reason I think that it's important to look at infant baptism in the new rite, and that is because if you are trying to make a kind of outreach to non-Catholics and especially to Protestants, so if you have at heart the principles of ecumenism, as we as we saw in the um, in the crisis series, the the this this principle of reaching out and trying to not do anything to offend the Protestants, then you're going to be kind of embarrassed by the old rite of infant baptism. And in other words, this is going to be something that the Protestants could point to and say, you don't think the same thing that we do. And so we don't agree with you because look at what you do for infant baptism. And the reason for that is what we were explaining last time, that for Catholicism, for our faith, the child, even an infant without the use of his faculties yet, he he belongs to the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of sin. And he has to be pulled out of that kingdom and put into the kingdom of God by the baptismal rite. And that's why there were all the exorcisms. That's why there was all the symbolism of, of moving from one place to another in the old rite. And also he has to be, how is he, how does that transition happen from one kingdom to the other? It happens through the baptismal rite, but specifically through an application of Christ's passion to him in baptism itself, performed by a priest. So a minister of the church, one who is acting in the person of Christ. And that's a very foreign thing for a Protestant. They can't, I'm speaking about Protestants here very generally. Uh, of course, there are many different beliefs that Protestants have. And so I'm speaking right. more generically here. But generally speaking, the Protestants don't think that uh, the 
rite of baptism is is doing something the way we Catholics think that it is doing something. And certainly they don't think that a priest, an ordained minister, is, is, is necessary for that as an instrument of Christ acting in the person of Christ. And remember, they think that Christ has done everything already. So he's already, he's already saved everybody. So we just have to kind of um, bring people into uh, or, or help people to admit that they've already been saved by Christ. Kind of oversimplifying things here, but if you think sure. about it from, a, from this point of view, for a Protestant, an infant, he can't make a personal act of faith. He can't recognize Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, as the famous stereotypical sentence goes. And so he can't do something personal uh, because he's he's a baby, he can't do anything, and and there's no priest that has any real power anyway, because Christ has done everything already. So, if you are trying, if you're you're fashioning a new rite for baptism, and you're trying to make a bridge between Catholics and Protestants, you're going to be, as I said, you're going to be kind of embarrassed by this all this very strong language of the old rite speaking to a baby that can't do anything for himself yet. And so the first thing that's going to have to go is all of that kind of old, they might say medieval sense of the sacraments and this idea that we're telling the baby, like you're a devil child right now, to use a kind of joking phrase, and you need to be with God. And now we need to pull you into the church. We need to get the devil out of you. I mean, that just doesn't, it doesn't sure. compute for the Protestants, you know? Right. So right. that's why I think when we compare the two rites from the infant baptism, we're going to see more drastically how they are trying to view baptism and specifically view it from a very ecumenical standpoint, trying to make it approach more the Protestant mindset. Okay. And so that's why I've chosen to make this the the, the real point of comparison. Sure. Now we're going to be looking, so then we're going to be looking at the right uh, in, in detail yes. and going through all this stuff. But broadly speaking, when we're talking about the sacrament of baptism, are there any general, I guess I could say misunderstandings or, or changes in intent or changes in the way that things are understood, just broadly speaking about baptism? Yes. Yes, I think there are. And I, I kind of went back and forth in my mind about whether it's better maybe to answer your question first or to go through the right first and allow things to kind of emerge. But I think a kind of combination of both will be okay. helpful. So I'm going to, I can maybe speak generally and, and kind of pose four different questions here. And then what are the answers to those questions for the traditional right? What are the answers to those questions for the new right? And then maybe after that, we can look at the new right in some detail okay. and see those same things emerging. So this is like a little, maybe if we answer things generally first, there's a, and we, can, we can, yeah, we kind of know what to look for, um, but it's going to be pretty clear. So here's kind of how I would sum it up. I would say the first question we could ask of both the rights, we could kind of put them there and say, okay, you tell me uh, first question, what is baptism? Okay. What is this whole ceremony? What is this whole rite? What is it? And from the traditional rite, we saw last time that we get the answer very clearly that it's a passing from the kingdom of Satan or sin to the kingdom of God through 
the application of Christ's passion. That's that's what baptism is doing. And it doesn't matter if you're a child or you're an adult. Essentially, baptism is doing that. And the traditional rite makes that very clear, as we saw last time. But for the new rite, the answer to that question is going to be different. Um, they're going to say the rite is going to seem to give the impression that this uh, whole ceremony is really about welcoming you into the church community. So you are being, you are joining a community, a, a community of faith, and where people share faith and they share their faith experiences, and you're now, you know, a member of the club. And I, I'm not really exaggerating too much when I say it that way, because we're going to see some of the texts, how, how much they try to push this, this understanding. So that's kind of the first question. Part of a community is not a bad thing, but it's not the whole crux of what baptism is. Right. Exactly. And the problem is that, you know, some of the, some phrases are kept and some even very traditional sounding phrases are maintained but they don't seem to mean anything anymore because they've lost their context. And so if we were to say uh, we're welcoming you to the church community, that would be true. But this is a community where um, we are part of the mystical body of Christ. We are belonging to the kingdom of Christ. Uh, we are rejecting, renouncing Satan and sin, and we are going to live in union with Christ through the mass, through receiving his bo- body, blood, soul, and divinity, and so on. Now there's a context. And so, oh, yeah, sure, you're welcome to the church community. Sure. But if I just say, we welcome you to the church community, and I don't say any of those other things, then I could mean just about anything by that. It could mean right. that you get to eat the potlucks every Sunday, you know, and that's all there is to it. We must so, both be hungry because I was just thinking you, you get yeah, really you, good casseroles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's the first thing you think about with the church community. So I, so it could mean anything. And that's the kind of ambiguity that we're going to see. We did see it in, um, in the documents in Vatican II. We, we see it also in these, in these sacramental rites. Um, okay. Another point we could ask of the two rites is, is, well, what is the main concern? What is the point of this rite? Why are there all these surrounding ceremonies? What are we, what are we doing with this, with this, with these ceremonies that are going on? And again, as we saw for the traditional rite, the point is to prepare this soul, this one individually to be a child of God and also to equip him for the struggle that is ahead of him. So his baptism begins a life of the new man, which as St. Paul said, clearly we have to, we have this battle of the old man and the new man, the old man that was born in sin and the new man that's born in grace. So we have to equip this soul for this struggle. And that's going to be his, his own way of the cross, sharing the passion of Christ. And that's very clearly the signification of the traditional right. But in the new right, what is the main concern? Remember, We're welcoming you to the church community. So what's our concern? Well, it seems to be the primary concern is to make an outreach to Protestants is to say, hey, we're really a lot closer than you think. We're really 
your brethren. We're, we're separated brethren, but we're all together. And we're going to also, the main concern that we have is we're celebrating what has already been accomplished. Christ has already won the victory. And this baptism by bringing this child or this adult into our Christian community is recognizing that Christ has won the victory for that soul as well. And so again, a very different perspective. On uh, the one hand, you have a battle, a struggle, uh, you have a, a, a big transition, you have connection with suffering, with death of Christ. On the other hand, you have, it's all done and let's celebrate now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really what's going to come out. Um, another question we can ask that demonstrates the difference of these two rights very starkly is, um, what does the right say about who is responsible now, who bears the responsibility as a result of this baptism? And what uh, is he responsible for? What does he have to do now? And that's where, especially for infant baptism, the traditional right is very striking because the traditional right speaks to the candidate. So even the baby, the priest speaks to the baby a lot. A lot of things are directed to the child. You know, if in the beginning, what do you seek of the church of God? Uh, Directed to the child and the godparents answer on his behalf. But then, you know, what does the faith give you eternal life? Well, if you want eternal life, here's what you have to do. And listing then what this child is responsible for. So it's really the candidate in traditional baptism, the child who is responsible for maintaining his baptismal purity so as to be present when the bridegroom returns, when Christ comes back to, to bring him into his, into his eternal kingdom. And there you get that very clearly at the end with the lighted candle. The lighted candle is given, of course, the baby can't hold it, but it's given to the, to the godfather, but it's addressed to the, to the child. And the traditional rite makes that comparison of like the, the, the wise virgins, the prudent virgins who are, um, uh, have their lamps and they're ready for the bridegroom coming back. This is what you have to do. You have to keep this candle lit throughout your whole life. So, and then of course the traditional right gives him the grace to do that. He's equipped with all of the graces and all the virtues he needs to be standing there uh, at the ready when his master returns. Contrast that with the new right. The new right uh, eliminates a lot of times that the priest speaks to the candidate. So in this case, to the baby, to the mm-hmm. child. Instead, the priest is almost always speaking to the parents, to the godparents, sometimes to the community. And he is explaining that they are responsible, the parents and the godparents especially, they are responsible for raising the child, quote, in the faith. That's the phrase that's used which again is is kind of vague it's kind of unclear um phrases like we get phrases like um to profess faith in Jesus Christ or to live in the freedom of the children of God and again these are phrases that we can understand in a very traditional sense but right. we've lost the context what does it mean to profess faith in Jesus Christ does it just mean to sing a song 
every now and again? Or does it mean to live a certain way and to renounce certain things that are worldly things? Or what does it mean to live in the freedom of the children of God? Well, we would say that means to exercise a life of virtue, and it finds its highest expression in the religious vows, actually, these vows that truly set you free. If you would be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor and come follow me. But we've lost that context in the new right, so I don't know what it means to live in the freedom of the children of God anymore. Am I free already and I just have to have a good life now? Or is there something that I really have to do? And so the burden of responsibility is put on the parents and godparents, but it's unclear exactly what they're responsible for. Uh, and we're going to see that. So we've oh. we've traded clarity for a kind of vagueness and some catchphrases that sound pretty good, but we're not really sure what they mean. Final question we could ask here, a point we could we could ask of the two rights is, well, who is it that does the right? Who performs the baptismal right? The whole all the ceremonies surrounding and so on. And then a traditional right, it's it's clear from the start throughout uh, right up to the end. It's the priest acting in the person of Christ and by the power of Christ who uh, does the right. He does all the ceremonies. He does the baptism itself. That's clear. And and it's it's clear he's acting, again, in persona Christi. The new right, again, we get this strange uh, feeling that it's that it, the priest is really just a kind of um, presider. He's a sort of master of ceremonies, if we can put it that way. And uh, Christ, is, Christ has already done everything. He's already saved everybody. And so the priest is really there, just kind of a, a president of the community, and he's leading a celebration. He's like, well, let's do this now. And I'm going to do it first, and then you're going to do it, and we're all going to we're all going to do this. So you you get the sense there that um, very much as we saw and will see with the mass, yeah. that there's a, a reduction of the priesthood to some kind of presider over the community. And that's right. a very, very, um, a notion that's very comfortable for Protestants. I was uh, just going to bring that up. It's it's very similar to to this role he has during the mass. Are, and exactly. maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler. Are we going to see that with the other sacraments as well? Or is it really more... Concrete um, here to some extent, you're going to see that mainly in the rights surrounding it, because, again, um, the rights are going to keep the form and the matter. And that's it's it's clear that the priest is speaking in persona Christi there because mm -hmm. he says ego, you know, ego te bapt, I baptize you or I absolve you and so on and so forth. But all the time there has to be an approach made to Protestants. And uh, it really seems it really the evidence all points that that was the motivation behind this. And we'll see that maybe more clearly in the baptismal ceremony than some of the others, because this is a sacrament that we, I'll use the word with scare quotes, share with right. the Protestants, right? So they right. think it's a sacrament. We think it's a sacrament. So this is a great, this is a great opportunity to make a mm -hmm. bridge. Um, it just really, you really get that sense when you start to go through the right. Right. Very interesting. All right. So I guess we should dive into the new rite itself. And I think just for a moment, I'll, I'll, we'll put up on the screen what the old rite looks like, and then we'll put up what the new rite looks like. And yes. it's, it's different. Um, 
there are many pieces that are very similar, but it's sometimes there's a lot more, sometimes there's a lot less uh, going on. So um, I guess we just start at the very beginning with the reception. Yeah, let's do that. And um, maybe maybe along the lines of what you mentioned, because that's a good point. Generally, I, I can make a couple of general points. The first is exactly what you said, which is the structure of the right has changed. And the in the traditional structure, we could put it into those three places that the different right. ceremonies happened. But in the new right, um, it's not so clear and there aren't, there isn't really a movement from one place to another uh, in the sense of um, that we're really going, uh, uh, you know, from outside the church, inside the church, the baptistry. The new right does mention um, a few times that you, um, you can be in one place or in another place and then you could have a procession to that other place. But first of all, it's always optional and Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to matter. So at one point, I think the right says, for example, now they should make a procession to the baptistry um, unless they're already there and, or something like this, you know, and then, or at the beginning, the priest should go and meet the parents um, wherever they are. They might be outside, they might be inside, they might be in the sanctuary, Where, wherever they are, you should just meet them there. So the first thing you do is you 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 lose that uh, sense of moving from one to the next to the next. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. So so we start with the reception of the child, this first part, wherever it is. Uh, yes. In, yes. In the church. Um, so uh, w- what does that look like, Father? Right. So. Um, the very first thing that's going to happen is a questioning, which is precisely the same. Let's say not the questions themselves, but it's the same order. So we started with a questioning with the traditional right as well, but there's a big difference uh, with the new right questioning. And um, right before I get to that, I want to mention maybe one other um, general point, because I actually wanted to read uh, I have the right here, the, the actual, um, rubrics and a couple of the rubrics are very interesting because they are supposed to tell the priest what to do, but they also give the sense of the, the feel, the spirit of this, right. And so I want to just read two of them here. Um, for those that have access to it, these are numbers 32 and 36. Uh, this is for the order of baptism for several children, but it's the same thing for a single child. So paragraph 32 reads this way. He says, baptism should be celebrated insofar as possible on a Sunday, the day on which the church recalls the Paschal mystery. And indeed, in a common celebration for all the newly born, and with the attendance of a large number of the faithful, or at least of the relatives, friends, and neighbors, and with their active participation. And so right away, we have, first of all, old rite baptism, it's clear. You do it as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we talk about within a week, if that's possible. Of course, health of the mother, health of the child, that's a big deal. But uh, as soon as possible. But this is no, wait until the Sunday, Wait until you have a lot of children together, maybe. Um, it's not exactly wait, but if you have a lot right. of children, that's better. And then right. as big a community as possible, the community, 
We have to have the community together for this celebration, right? What is it? Um, it's a common celebration. So already we've got is something that we're celebrating. And um, again, it's recalling the Paschal mystery, which is going to be, yes, the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ. Right. Very important, the resurrection. And it's all over now. It's right. done. So you get that sense immediately. It further mentions uh, a little bit later on that the priest or deacon who's celebrating it should um, wear a festive color. So a color of celebration. Whereas mm -hmm. in the traditional rite, the priest starts with a violet stole. Violet is the color of penance. So it's the color of, yeah, we've got some work to do. We've got a struggle to, to, to go into. This is the other paragraph that I want to mention, though. Um, uh, paragraph 36, it says the celebrant greets those present and especially the parents and godparents, recalling in a few words the joy with which the parents receive their children as a gift from God, who is the source of all life and who now wishes to bestow his own life on them. And then it gives some sample words that you might use. But the point there is not that's not untrue. It's true that the child is a gift from God and all that kind of thing. But think about, again, the traditional right. The first time the priest meets the parents, where is it? Outside the church. Outside. And what's the first yeah. thing he has to tell the parents? This child does not have the right to enter this church yet. Right. That's basically what the ceremony is saying. But here it's like, we're so happy for you. And we're going to be happier after this. And that's right. the spirit, right? And I want so, to jump in real quick, Father. Yeah. If if the words Paschal Mystery didn't jump out to you and you're listening to this or watching this, go back and watch Crisis Series number 24. Because there when you go. said that, Father, I yeah. went, oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. Always the Paschal Mystery. And right. that's exactly right. I um, I, I uh, should have mentioned that too, but that's that's where you should go. If you haven't, if you don't know what that phrase means, it's got a whole wealth of meaning yeah. um, for the for the new rites. So sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, that's that's good. Um, so anyway, the first thing that happens is a questioning. So the priest meets the parents, godparents, wherever they are. But um, uh, who is he talking to in the questioning? And that's really the point. He's talking um, uh, to the parents. And so um, the parents of each child, he asks them first question. Remember, the first question, the traditional right was, what do you seek of the church of God? And that's directed to the infant. The godparents then respond on his behalf. But here it's a question directed to the parents. Um, what name do you give your child? OK, what's your child's name? All right. Well, we need to know that. And then the second question sounds like the traditional question, but again, to the parents, what do you ask of God's church for John, right? Fill in the blank, mm -hmm. the name. And the parents respond, not faith, but baptism. Remember, um, I can't give anybody faith. Faith is a personal act by which I um, uh, admit that, that Christ has saved me. This is a this is a Protestant style mindset. And so I don't ask the church for faith. You can't give me that. I have to do that. And again, the child's not capable of that. So we ask the parents, what do you what are you here for? What do you want? Oh, I want you to baptize my child. I want you to celebrate his initiation, his welcoming into the Christian community. That's the that's really the sense that we get here. Um, so 
after that, those two questions, the priest then addresses the parents first and then the godparents. So he addresses the parents and he tells them, and this is where we get the sense of the responsibilities. He says, um, in asking for baptism for your children, you, the parents, you are undertaking the responsibility of raising them in the faith so that keeping God's commandments, they may love the Lord and their neighbor as Christ has taught us. Do you understand this responsibility? We do. Then he turns to the godparents and he says, are you ready to help the parents of these children in their duty? Godparents, we are. So immediately you have the sense of responsibility there. It lies on the on the parents and the godparents, not on the child. And again, they have to um, raise the child in the faith so that he can do this loving. And we're not really sure what that means. There's not a context yet for that. So we don't get a sense of combat. We don't get a sense of personal responsibility. Remember, right at the beginning, the priest says um, to the child uh, of the traditional right, excuse me, he says, what do you ask of the church of God? Faith. What does faith give you? Eternal life. If you want eternal life, you keep the commandments, right? right. You do this. So again, and then immediately after that, Exiabeo, get out of him the, to the devil. Okay. Right. So here we, we have rather the parents and the godparents, it's their job. Uh, right after that, then the priest is going to continue by uh, his first gesture that he makes. He's going to make the sign of the cross on the child. And we say, that's great. That's very traditional. But um, in fact, what he does is he says uh, the following, right? Um, Dear children or so-and-so, um, the church of God, or or again, we we have a different phrasing in different places, so we could use also um, the Christian community. So the church of God receives you with great joy, the, or the Christian community welcomes you um, in its name. So in the name of the community, I sign you with the sign of the cross of Christ our Savior. Then after me, your parents and godparents will do the same. So right away from the beginning, why is this sign of the cross there? Because you're being welcomed into the Christian community. And not by me alone as the priest who has some kind of power. No, by everybody, by your parents and godparents. We all welcome you into our church community. And that's probably, um, this beginning of the rite is probably where you get very, very clearly right away what this rite is about. Mm -hmm. It's a welcoming rite. It's a celebration. It's joyful. And the parents and the godparents have the responsibility to help their child make a personal act of faith later on in his life. Basically, that's it. That's the way you can summarize it. So no um, exorcism. Nope. No exorcism okay. yet. Um, okay. No mention of the devil. No mention of the struggle. No mention of what keeping the commandments means. Nothing like that. Uh, right after that, we have a, an optional ceremony of a, a there can be a, a song that is sung at this point. There can be a procession to where readings will take place. So um, the liturgy of the word, as as it's often called, even in the in the new mass, it's called the liturgy of the word. Mm -hmm. And this is also called the sacred celebration of the word of God, another way that they phrase it. So again, another celebration. But what's going to go on now is there's going to be um, one or two readings from the gospel, and then the priest is going to give a homily. 
So uh, um, some kind of sermon. And, and then right after that, we're going to have intercessory prayers where the priest says, we want this. And everybody says, yes, we do. And, and so on and so forth. Kind of like a litany um, of intercessory prayers. And what's surprising about this is that there's no analog in the traditional rite for this. So there is not a reading of gospel. There's not a homily given by the priest. There aren't intercessory prayers. Um, so where are these coming from? This is, this is uh, a novelty, right? So it's something completely new. Well, it's coming directly, unfortunately, from a Protestant rite. So if you look um, back even to uh, Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, uh, his ninth, uh, sorry, uh, 1549 Book of Common Prayer, which is uh, for the Church of England, when the Church of England, uh, not really a church, but had split from the Catholic Church, um, they started revamping all of the all of the rites. And this was one of the things that they did. So in the Common Book of Prayer for baptism, you have the uh, reading, the homily, and then um, uh, intercessions as well. So uh, in the later books, the later uh, common prayer, they keep the same, books of common prayer, excuse me, they keep the same structure. And in other Protestant rites, you can find a similar thing, um, a reading, and then, and then a homily. So this is uh, very specifically a movement towards the Protestants uh, in, in an ecumenical spirit. It's, it's obvious. Um, when we move to the intercessions, uh, the prayers of the faithful, it's the entire community that's praying together for, for the child. And, um, it's the priest just who's leading it. So again, he's kind of a president of the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but, um, you know, why is it that the community is praying for this child? <laughs> what, what, what do we want? We're, we're not really clear. And we read some of the intercessions. It's, it's, um, you know, dear brothers and sisters, let us invoke the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for these children about to receive the grace of baptism um, and for their parents, godparents, and all the baptized. Give these children new birth and baptism through the radiant divine mystery of your death and resurrection and join them to your holy church. Everybody responds, Lord, we ask you, hear our prayer. And so on. The, the intercessions go on, but they're very vague. Keep their families always in your love. Lord, we ask you, hear our prayer. I mean, I don't know what that means. For, for It could mean anything. It could mean something right. very right and very true. Yes. Uh, uh, but but it could also mean something that that is not Catholic, unfortunately. Um, this is maybe a good place to mention that uh, for these intercessory prayers, uh, there are um, no fewer than five different options that are spelled out for the priest to use. He can use any one of those five that he likes, um, or actually he could make it up. So in other words, the right also adds, he says this or similar words, uh, mm -hmm. if he so chooses. And so here we have a, the first kind of indication that this rite is going to be very amorphous. So that is to say, it's not going to have a strict set form. It's going to be kind of as the celebrant chooses. And throughout the rite, I'm not going to mention every time it says it because it's all over the place. It, sure. it very often says the priest uses these or similar words. Okay. And so again, he can choose. Do you have and, any um, options like that in the traditional form? Is there any place in the ritual where there are options like that? 
Okay, so not that I can think of. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, fair enough. But so, I mean, at least it's not like this. Yeah, I believe the only time, no, it's nothing like this. In that sense, the priest follows exactly the same ceremonies every single time. I believe with uh, only one instance I can think of where the ritual says that this may be omitted. And it's the time that the priest um, does the ephefta or the be opened. He's supposed to take saliva and so usually just touch his thumb to his tongue and then he's supposed to touch the ears and the nostrils of the child and here the church realizes well there could be any number of reasons why this would be a bad idea right. it could be it's it's it could be a too unsanitary. And so she says it, the priest can omit this, uh, the saliva, okay. not the effefta. He still has to touch, right. but the saliva. And okay. that, of course, the symbolism goes right back to Christ. Remember, he took spittle and mixed it. It's it's the whole idea of the sacraments there. But that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head where there's options. There's certainly okay. not a broad option of, of basically say whatever you want. No, you have to say it this way. Mm -hmm. Um so this is, this is, a, that's a novelty, um, the, all the options. And, and I think that the, um, I'll maybe say this a little bit later too, but there's a, there's a danger here that's hidden. And that is that besides destroying the unity of the right, because it can be anything you want. The danger is that if you have a priest or a deacon who throughout the whole right, pretty much can kind of choose what he wants to do. What's going to happen when he gets to those specific words that he cannot yeah. change? Otherwise, he invalidates the right. right. So when he says, um, you know, John, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and pours the water. He's not permitted to change those where it would break the sense at the risk of invalidating the sacrament. So, for example, if he said, John, we baptize you or the Christian mm -hmm. community baptizes you. That would invalidate the right. Now, that's obviously in the in the um, in the order of baptism, the new order of baptism. It, it doesn't say you can do that. It's not optional. Right. So it, it's clear you have to say that. But if you've got a priest or a deacon who's in the mindset of well, I can more or less do what I want because this right. is a celebration of the community and I have to be moved by the spirit in my prayer, then, you know, why not? Let's have the mother pour the water. Um, I'll say the words with the father and we'll say we or the Christian community. Well, he's just invalidated the baptism. It's very and understandable in that sense where a yes, priest could deviate yes. from the actual rite so, of baptism. So it, it, it for me, it, it it's this is a minor point overall, but it really gives the sense that you can do what you want, but then you can play with the sacraments. Can you play with the sacramental form too? Uh, I would be afraid that it leads to that. And, and I know of at least one case that went very public. Um, uh, we were mentioning that we were talking about that before, uh, before we started here that, um, uh, of, a of, I think it was a deacon who was using the wrong form. And so, mm -hmm. uh, that was, this was discovered and his baptisms were invalid. And now what are the, what, what are they going to do? Those poor people, they have to get rebaptized. And I mean, not rebaptized, have to be baptized validly. Right. And, uh, that's really a mess. Uh, it's really a mess. So or in some cases, maybe even marriages or holy orders, cause it went on for a long time. 
Yes. If it's <laughs> over years and everybody thought the baptism was valid, then yeah. we have to do the sacraments validly now. Um, right. All the ones that were received since then. So it's very, it's very surprising. Wow. Um, and, but that's, a, it's kind of a hallmark of the new rites that they, they don't give enough by themselves. They, they, in terms of instruction, in terms of understanding, it, it's going to rely on the catechism, let's say, and the, and the training of the priest, um, because he doesn't find what the right is about in the right itself. It's not clear anymore. Right. Um, anyway, so that's, so we got the, the liturgy of the word. We had the intercessions. Now we move on to a section that looks very promising because it's entitled, let me just get the exact title here. Um, it's entitled prayer of exorcism and anointing before baptism. Oh, good. And so here we go. Now we're going to get something I, I, that's sounds a bit more traditional. Certainly prayer of exorcism sounds traditional, mm -hmm. but in fact, when we, when we read that prayer, um, it's a prayer addressed to God. And so it says this, at least in one of the options, there's a, there's another option. Um, almighty ever living God who sent your son into the world to drive out from us the power of Satan, the spirit of evil, and bring the human race rescued from darkness into the marvelous kingdom of your light. We humbly beseech you to free these children from original sin, to make them the temple of your glory, and to grant that your Holy Spirit may dwell in them. So overall, that prayer sounds a bit more traditional. There's no doubt about it. We're mentioning freeing from original sin, which is an effect of baptism, making them a temple of your glory, okay, and Holy Spirit dwelling within them. That's all very good. But unfortunately, uh, you have a sense of the in the prayer at the beginning that this is something that's already been done. It's already accomplished. The victory of Christ is won. And so again, it's not right now a victory of Christ over this one here. And even when we say exorcism there, it's actually not an exorcism. And why not? Because the church has always understood that exorcism is spoken to the devil. It's a casting out of the devil. So it's you devil, you get out. That's an exorcism. So this is not an exorcism. This mentions the devil, Satan, uh, the spirit of evil, but it mentions it as this is why Christ came to drive out Satan. So it's not drive Satan out of this one here, right? right. But it's it's already done. It's, when you were uh, reading it, it almost it. sounded like an introit. Yes. Like a very, was, very nice yes. prayer. But. Yep, a nice prayer, but but uh, where, where did the exorcism go? And in, in fact, that's that's it. That's all we get. Um, the, the celebrant will then anoint the uh, child with the oil of catechumens, which is the same as the traditional rite, except okay. it, says, um, it says there very clearly that um, the celebrant can omit this rite. So um, if he wishes, at least in one place, it, it can be omitted. And instead, he can say a, a short prayer. He doesn't have to anoint with the oil. Um so that's kind of surprising because that was always traditionally done. We, we mentioned the signification again of the battle who's anointed before a battle. Well, a wrestler who's going into this struggle 
wrestling with the powers of, of darkness, this child needs this support, but, but that can just be removed. Um, again, the, uh, at that point, then the priest lays his hands on the child and, uh, but, but we don't know why we don't know what, what we don't know what's going on there. Um, I should mention also that, that prayer, the, um, the, the prayer of the anointing, uh, it's asking, it's, it sounds very good because it's asking for what baptism is going to do, but there's something kind of strange about that too, because if baptism is an efficacious rite, if it's a, if it's a sacrament in the traditional sense that by the power of Christ through the priest acting in the name of Christ, this effect is going to follow necessarily, right? I baptize you. I'm stating it. It's, it's happening. Um, then why would we pray for all of those things? <laughs> you know, obviously mm-hmm. we're going to, we want in, in, in many times in the traditional rites, you pray for what you know is going to happen. But when in the, in the new rite, we haven't gotten any sense of, of what this really is about to then pray for what you know is going to happen. Sounds very strange to me. Mm-hmm. Instead, the the traditional rite in of baptism, it's constantly asking God to make the child worthy of the grace of baptism, or able then to fulfill his baptismal vows and promises. Right, so that's worthy of asking. We know that this is going to happen. Now, make him able to live up to this. Make him able to really go into this battle and and be victorious with Christ. So there again, it's a it's a there's a contrast there. Right. Uh, so after this short um, couple of ceremonies of the anointing, the laying on of hands, we go to the section of the of the rite that's that's called the celebration of baptism, the celebration of the sacrament. Okay. And so what's what's going on now? Well, uh, the very first thing that's going to happen is the priest gives to the faithful a kind of reminder about the wonderful work of God who sanctifies man through water. And so he reminds them that it is, um, this is the way God does things. He does things through water and so on. And then, and this is a striking point, um, he moves to a blessing of the water and an invocation of God over the water. That's that's what's listed in the, in the right. Mm-hmm. And the most surprising thing about this is that it is um, it, it specifies very clearly that it should never be entirely omitted. This blessing of the water and invocation of the water. Sorry, I got my pages mixed up here, but I found the right one here. So it says this, uh, paragraph 55. Um, During Easter time, however, if the baptismal water has been consecrated at the Easter vigil, so that the baptism may not lack the element of thanksgiving and petition, the blessing and invocation of God over the water takes place in accordance with the other formulas found in these other numbers, using the textual variation given at the end of these same formulas. So we're in a rite where you can more or less do what you want, but all of a sudden we get this statement that you have to do this. You have to do some form of blessing the water and invoking God over the water. Now, why? You have to why? ask yourself why. And um, this is where I think one of the, I think this is one of the most problematic points in the whole new rite, because let's think, remember back again about the traditional rite. 
where did that water come from? You have to use, for solemn baptism, you have to use baptismal water. Mm-hmm. When was the baptismal water made? The Easter Vigil. Easter. And it was made with the oils that were consecrated by the bishop that Holy Thursday before. And so there's no such thing in the in the new, uh, sorry, in the old rite of blessing the water again. You don't have to. You have to use the baptismal water. And and you and so you immediately get the signification of linking this with what? With with the vigil ceremony. And the vigil ceremony linked with Holy Thursday, the institution of the priesthood, the institution of the sacrifice of Christ uh, in, in the Last Supper, which is which is um, the same as the sacrifice on the cross of Good Friday. So we go right back to the passion. The passion is the source of the virtue of the power of this water to cause what it's going to cause. And it's stronger than that because you have to read the, the blessing of the baptismal water in the Easter vigil. There's a, there's a very striking sentence where the priest has the Paschal candle in his hands and he's holding it, this huge candle. And it was just, the candle was blessed at the Easter fire. It was brought into the church. It represents Christ. It's very clearly that. And he, he lowers the candle into the water three times. And then he breathes on the water after that in the, in the form of, of a cross or something similar to that. It's a Greek letter, actually, but it's, it mm-hmm. signifies the cross. And um, while he's putting the candle in the water, he says, you know, may the power of the Holy Ghost descend into all the water of this font, the power of the Holy Ghost. So this water is imbued with this power that's coming from Christ, from his passion, the, the link is so obvious. And, um, okay, come back to the new right now. Well, even if you've already done that, it's the Easter season, you've blessed some water, it's all good, bless it again. <laughs> well, why? why? Why would we do that? Well, uh, unfortunately, the answer is because this blessing is very close to a Protestant right. Oh, come on. And and it's, it's, it's a 1549 Book of Common Prayer, very similar. And uh, also because we can't have this reference back to the passion. It's too clear. You know, I'm interpreting things a little bit. Maybe I'm being a little bit unfair, but I don't think so because you have to, in one sense, you might say you have to break the link with the passion because again, the Protestants don't like that. The passion is done. It's already done. You don't have sacraments that that are imbued with the power from the passion that, that you then apply to souls. That's too Catholic a notion. And so these Protestants are going to get upset. Um, so yeah, we've got to bless the water again and notice again, the rubric so that the baptism may not lack the element of Thanksgiving and petition. So, so this is just a prayer of Thanksgiving. And just a prayer of asking God to do something instead of, again, this water in which the whole, the, the baptismal water is sacred now. It's got the oils right. in it. The oils are consecrated. The oils are treated very specially by the church. Baptismal water cannot be used for anything else. It has to be used for baptism because deshendat, you know, that's the spirit of Christ, of uh, the spirit of God has descended into the font. Uh, there's all that rich, rich, rich 
um, uh, I want to say symbolism is maybe not the best word, but that um, all that sacramental nature that's going on there of the matter and the form and God's power being in the very material things now. And again, if you go back to the gospel, that's the way Christ acts. He anoints the the, the eyes of the blind man with, with the matter, with stuff, and somehow through that matter or through his touch, his material touch, the power of God goes through. This is what Christ was doing. He's the incarnation. He's the, the, the word made flesh and the sacraments are all that. They're the power of God made incarnate, we could say almost. Um, but no, all of that is gone now. And um, it's very, it's very sad. It's very sad. Forgive me for the facial expressions and, and getting a little lippy there during that last part, Father, but I, I, yeah. I, I'm upset. I mean, yep. I, don't I, say I think I'm angry, I think you should be. I'm, I think you should be. It's uh, we we lost a treasure. That's what that's what's going on here, um, because because the, it's it's broken. The 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 link with the Easter Vigil with all of the all of those beautiful ceremonies is broken now. Yeah. Um, so it's um, it's surprising, really. Uh, but anyway, we we pass that. We keep going. Okay. Um, we come to the next part of the rite, which is entitled the renunciation of sin and the profession of faith. And so this again also sounds traditional because in the traditional rite, we had the second questioning and then the third questioning. The second questioning was the reject or renunciation of Satan. And the third questioning was the belief in God and in Christ and then the desire for baptism. So this sounds good. Uh, but who is being asked these questions? Well, again, in the new rite, it's the parents and the godparents. And um, it's uh, there are multiple um, different forms you can use, of course, for different things. Some of them um, sound more traditional than others. Uh, none of them are 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 completely ridiculous. There's, there's, there's definitely something there. There's a, do you renounce Satan? That question is there in one of the forms at least. Um, but he could also say, um, do you renounce sin so as to live in the freedom of the children of God? And then later, do you renounce Satan, the author and prince of sin? So you get the sense he can, he can kind of play with these, with these things a little bit. Um, this formula could be adapted if the diocesan bishop chooses and so on and so forth. Right. Um, the, uh, but again, so I want to mention here that it's, it's, it's the parents and the godparents who are responsible. And I, I maybe just mention that once again, there's an explicit reference. It says, um, dear parents and godparents through the sacrament of baptism, the children you have presented are about to receive from the love of God, new life by water and the Holy spirit. For your part, you must strive to bring them up in the faith so that this divine life may be preserved from the contagion of sin and may grow in them day by day. That's actually a good, that's a good formula. If your faith makes you ready to accept this responsibility, um, then mindful of your own baptism, renounce sin and profess faith in Christ Jesus, the faith of the church in which children are baptized. So, Again, it, it remains a very vague formula, and um, it's uh, in this in this formula. It's not so much, but in another one that I read, that's a um, uh, the actual rights as they were originally published. It actually says, and I'm not surprised they change it here. It actually says, um, "Renew your own baptismal vows." 
And it's such a funny phrase because um, this is the baptism of a child, right? right? So in the traditional right, the child was asked, do you renounce Satan? Do you reject, do you renounce um, all his works and all his pomps? Do you believe in, in Jesus Christ? Do you, uh, and so on and so forth to the child. So mm-hmm. those are his baptismal vows. But if you went through the new right, you didn't, as a baby, you didn't get asked those questions. So you didn't make any vows. So how can you renew vows that you didn't make? That you never made. So that's really weird. And again, in the original one, in some of the versions, you can still find that. Um, renew the vows or your baptism, but they might not have made any vows. So it's a really a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Anyway, um, why is it that the parents and the godparents, again, are asked these questions? Uh, because they're the community. And this is all about the community. And I want to stress that because at the end of these um, questioning of the parents and godparents, the celebrant says the following, uh, and this is the rubric, uh, 59. The celebrant, together with the community, gives assent to this profession of faith, saying, this is our faith. This is the faith of the church. We are proud to profess it in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, I mean, it could not be clearer. The whole community has to say, we accept this profession of faith. This is our faith of the community. This is our faith. Hooray. That's basically what's being said here. Um, and and I, I, I don't know how to stress the contrast anymore. I think it's stressed. But right. what is the first question? In traditional baptism, what do you seek of the church of God? Faith. So faith comes from the church. It it comes from Jesus Christ through the church, the only church that he has founded. And you have to receive it from the church. But this is not that. This is this is the faith of the church. This is our we just all admit it. We all say we profess it. Um, we're all together. We have it. And we're happy that you profess it, too. Uh, that's not that's not it, though. That's not that's not a Catholic sentiment at all. Um, so anyway, after that, we go um, to the we go to the baptism itself. So finally, we make it to the uh, to the actual um, matter and form. And there's one more question here. That is, um, again, mimicking the traditional right, but it's asked of the parents, um, not of the child. Uh, They say it says, um, is it your will, therefore, that child, so John, should receive baptism in the faith of the church, which we have all professed with you? And it's almost like, I mean, it's almost like they take every possibility to say that the faith is the faith of the community and Mm -hmm. the child is entering the faith of the community, entering the community. What does it mean to be baptized in the faith of the church? Well, apparently it means to be joining this group of people who has just said all the same things, but that's not what baptized in the faith of the church means. Baptized in the faith of the church means the church of, of, of Christ, the bride of Christ has uniquely of all the churches, of all the professions, of all the religions, uniquely has the faith which saves, the faith which makes you alone pleasing to God, and that church is going to give you that faith. By this right, you're going to get the virtue of faith, sanctifying grace in your soul. By this right, performed by the priest who is in persona Christi, acting on behalf of his church, 
That's what that's the traditional sense. But this sense of baptizing the faith of the church, it could mean that, but more likely it just means that you're baptized in the faith that everybody says the same thing, you know? Well, that's very empty. Um so after that question, we proceed to the uh, the parents and godparents say together, it is our will that this one is baptized. And so now the priest does the actual baptism. We talked about that already. It remains unchanged. It's um, so-and-so, I baptize you in the name of the Father, pours the water, and of the Son, pours the water, and of the Holy Ghost, pours the water, Holy Spirit. Um, or he immerses him, so either one is, is possible. And... Um, that's uh that's the baptism so we've we've talked about that already it remains unchanged it's definitely valid um after that we get um some other rites that the um the new rite calls quote explanatory rites so Mm. presumably this is going to be an explanation of what just happened and uh that sounds hopeful but um don't get your hopes up we're going to be let down (laughs) so um First, and, and it's, it's actually pretty much matching the same as the traditional rite. So we're going to get an anointing. We're going to get a white garment and we're going to get a lighted candle. So the, okay. so the three remain the same. Uh, for the anointing, I just want to mention that um, uh, it's the prayer that goes with it. So it is the chrism. It is on the crown of the head. But the prayer says, um, Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has freed you from sin, given you new birth by water and the Holy Spirit, and joined you to his people. Always mention the community. He now anoints you with the chrism of salvation. Hmm. So God is anointing you? What about the priest? The priest is the one who... So that's really weird. Um, But again, the priest is not a priest, right? He's a president. So it's God who's anointing. Second right we get is the clothing with the white garment. And this is one of the rare times that the celebrant addresses the child. Uh, also in the previous prayer, he's kind of addressing the child. But here he addresses the child and he gives him a, a white garment. But what is that white garment? Let's read it. John, you have become a new creation and have clothed yourself in Christ. May this white garment be a sign to you of your Christian dignity with your family and friends to help you by word and example, bring it unstained into eternal life. So it's a perfect example of the vagueness and ambiguity. Um, Unstained from what? Uh, We haven't mentioned the devil too much. You know, there's maybe like one or two mentions of the devil. We've mentioned sin, but it's the sin that Christ already beat. He already conquered it. We've mentioned the commandments of God, but we don't know if you violate that commandment. Is that a stain? Uh, We're not sure what unstained means. So you're supposed to bring it unstained into eternal life. Not sure what that means. Um, But also this, um, you have become a new creation and clothed yourself in Christ. Uh. He didn't, you know, I mean, we, bap- we baptized, I baptized him, right. right? The priest baptized him. So that's very strange. And then it's a sign of your Christian dignity. So you're a worthy person. You're a good person. You're a good Christian. Um, contrast that with the traditional rite, which says very clearly, this white garment is given to you. It represents what you are. You're pure now. 
And we know what that purity means. The devil's gone. Sin is gone. Uh, has no hold over you. You're, you, you're to carry it, to carry it like the cross, right? <laughs> to carry it um, uh, unstained, uh, un, un, unblemished, uh, without blemish into, into eternal life. So it, it's a, just a very different spirit going on here. Right. Um, the final rite uh, here is the lighted candle um, of, of the three. And here the priest turns back to the parents and um, the, the, the godparents and he addresses them. So remember in the traditional rite, the, the, uh, the lighted candle was given to the child. It's, it's you receive this, but now it's given to the parents and godparents. So and again, the responsibility falls on them. So that, and that, that's why that bring it unstained into eternal life. We don't know what that means. The child has no responsibility. It's about the parents and godparents. So let's read that. He says, um, uh, receive the light of Christ, um, parents and godparents, this light is entrusted to you to be kept burning brightly so that your children enlightened by Christ may walk always as children of the light and persevering in the faith may run to meet the Lord when he comes with all the saints in the heavenly court. And again, I, I want to stress that if the child can't really make this personal act of faith, it's obvious we have to tell the parents and godparents, this is about you. You have to keep your personal act of faith going. And somehow that's going to help your child too. So he's going to do the same thing. But right now he can't. So you keep this light burning. The responsibility, you walk always as children of the light. Um, and Sorry, your children walk always, but you you keep the light burning brightly, right? That's the, the sense there. So very, very strange. Again, in traditional right, it's the faithful virgins. Uh, they The prudent ones, they have to be there um, with their light. So the child has to be responsible. Anyway, um, after that, uh, funnily enough, we get the FFTA. <laughs> So we, we lost it. Um, it was in the traditional rite uh, earlier on before before the baptism. Here we get the Ephepta. Uh It's optional, so it does not need to be done. But if the priest wants, he can do it. The celebrant, what is he going to do? He touches the ears and he touches the mouth of the child. So in the traditional rite, it was the ears and the nose. Here it's the ears and the mouth. Uh, why? Well, it says um, to receive his word with your ears. Sorry. It says, grant that you may soon, sorry, may the Lord Jesus grant that you may soon receive his word with your ears and profess the faith with your lips. Well, I mean, that's meaningless, right? Because uh, he received the faith already in baptism. He has the virtue of faith, Right. Right. And of course, he can't profess it using his own mouth yet uh, because he's an infant. The word comes from infons, unable to speak. But um, but th this is meaningless. Um, in the traditional rite, it's opening the senses of the child so that he can be responsive to Christ. And we can't help but think about John the Baptist in the womb of his mother, leaping for joy, hearing Christ. But mm -hmm. this infant, even if he's a baby, you know, can receive grace and can hear the word of Christ in some, in some regard. So right. here that the, the new right just says, well, soon, you know, when you grow up basically. Um, and that's that. So anyway, that is the end of the main part. Then we get a, the final thing, which is uh, called the conclusion of the right. 
There is um, mentioned, if you want another procession, now you can make a procession to the altar. It says, unless baptism took place uh, in the sanctuary. So you, you could have done the whole baptism right there. But if you didn't, then you can do a procession. You can sing a song. There's a baptismal song that you can sing. And then um, everybody prays uh, together the Lord's Prayer. So the Our Father. This again, mimicking the, um, the Anglican rite. Uh, we did pray the Our Father together in the traditional rite, but it was with the credo, and it's the profession of the faith that uh, that is representing the faith that the church has. It's very clear in the traditional rite. We just brought the child into the church. Right. This is what the faith, uh, what the faith that the church keeps. But here, it's just um, the community prays together. Community. Yeah. Um, then finally, at the end, there's a blessing. the The priest gives a blessing. Um, to whom? Well, it says the priest uh, blesses the mothers holding the children in their arms, blesses the fathers and all those present. So blessing for the whole community. Why? Because it was the whole community. It was a function of the whole community. So no mention of a blessing for the children. Um, anyway, we didn't, we don't give one in the traditional, right? We say, uh, you know, go in peace and may the Lord be right. with you addressing the child one last time. Now there, there is often the, you know, dedication of the child to the blessed Virgin. There are yes. often ceremonies yes. that follow yes. the baptism. Yes. So there is that, but that's not a, that's not part of the baptism itself. So no. we're not really going to get no, into that. No, it's not, not part of the liturgy. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's a, a private devotion that the uh, parents sure. can, it's a beautiful one that parents can do. So, uh, but this is a community function. So we bless the whole community really. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we got in a sense, both of us, I think we got a little, a little frustrated in the middle there because it is really surprising when you go through yeah. it and very saddening. Uh, but I, I think it's very difficult to see what, baptism is anymore. I want to come back to that point. You don't, you don't really know what's going on. And, um, I want to mention in this connection, just very, very briefly in the adult baptism, in the traditional, right. Uh, there, if, if somebody had professed, if an adult had professed another faith, so had been up, been before whatever other religion, um, there is, required to be done an abjuration of that faith. And that happens mm. first before everything. And it's done, it's done separately. It's, it's, there's a, there, there's, it's in the ritual. And so he has to say, I abjure, I, I cast off, I have nothing to do with this other uh, religion that I had professed before. In the new rite, there's no such thing. So even if you're an adult and you're coming to Catholicism, you don't make an abjuration of your previous faith. So again, another kind of ecumenical touch there. Um, but we can also see that just again, with all of the options and all of the possibilities, there's, there's no, there's no unity anymore. There's no unity in prayer. There's no, um, uh, you know, one church, one faith, one baptism. What does that mean anymore? It doesn't mean anything. You make it up, you can do what you want. And again, I, I think there's really a comeback to that. I mentioned it in the, in the, uh, first podcast that we did just, just the lack of reverence. The lack of reverence is very surprising. Um, we believe that the word of God became flesh. And so we have to adore, worship a man because he's God also. And everything in Catholicism 
is like that. There's a whole um, hierarchy of sacredness coming down from Christ himself and the Eucharist, the highest sacrament, the blessed sacrament is Christ. We genuflect, we adore it, but it's Christ under the appearances of, of bread. But everything from that, everything the Eucharist touches is rendered sacred. The priest's hands have to be consecrated because he's going to touch something sacred. The oils are consecrated. They are sacred. They need a special place. The baptismal water is, is special because it contains consecrated oils and so on and so forth. There's a tremendous reverence. And the new rite just seems to sweep all that aside in favor of what? A community celebration. Right. There's nothing wrong with community celebration, but there no. is something wrong when that's the only thing you do and you, you don't have any sense of why you're celebrating or what's going on or whether anything really is sacred. It's, it's really surprising, the lack of reverence. All right, Father, thank you for that, and thank you for going through these with us. Uh, we appreciate you coming in to, to do these. Um, it has been very eye-opening. Good. All right, thank you, Andrew. Right. Thank you, Father. <laughs>